Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Justin Daniels. Justin is a cybersecurity SME and M&A attorney at Baker Donaldson, where he advises his corporate clients on the deployment and scaling of technology that ranges from SaaS, fintech, data centers, to autonomous vehicles, drones, and cryptocurrency. Justin helps clients make informed business decisions while managing data privacy and cybersecurity risk. He has co-authored a book called Data Reimagined, Building Trust One Byte at a Time, which is designed to show businesses how to leverage privacy and security practices to transform their relationships with customers and earn their trust. Justin, thanks for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to diving into cybersecurity broadly, smart contracts, talk about hacks as well as your book. Jacob, thank you. You had me at smart contracts, so I'm looking <laughs> forward to our discussion today. I think it'll be a fun one. And before we started recording, you mentioned you just returned from a book signing in Florida. What was it like doing a book signing as an author? It was a little surreal. I was there to do a three and a half hour workshop on incident response. And they said, hey, if you come down, we'll buy your books, give them out to all the attendees. And they did. And people's like, oh, can you sign my book? And so, yeah, it was a little surreal. I felt, you know, I felt like a rock star for about 15 minutes. That's understandable. So did you practice your signature ahead of time or was this just off the cuff standard signature format? I, it was my usual ugly scrawl, as my kids like to say, but I did try <laughs> to give everyone a, you know, some type of personal message. Nice, nice. Oh, that's fantastic. We'll talk about your book in a bit, but I'd love to start with cybersecurity. When people think of cybersecurity, they think of hackers, they think of, you know, some protection that exists, but most people don't really understand what that means. What does, what do you mean when you say cybersecurity? So when I talk about cybersecurity, really what we're talking about is how you protect your business processes data or whatever your business considers to be really important from unauthorized access, messing with the integrity of the data, or its confidentiality. It's the cyber triad, CIA, no pun intended. <laughs> and so to me, cybersecurity has just grown exponentially in importance over the last 30 years, and it will continue to grow to the point where, you know, you can't run a business even today really without it. Why, you know, I can see from a, a perspective of building within a growing industry, that's a great place to build a career. But what initially drew you to cybersecurity and to build out expertise in this space? So I will take you back to 2015. I was just working on a commercial transaction for a client and on the other end was Sony. And it was right before they got hacked by the North Koreans. But what really got me involved was 
the Israeli version of Steve Jobs came to Atlanta for one day. He flew 11 hours to Atlanta, 11 hours back to Israel, spent just a day. And he was there to talk about cybersecurity and the connected car. And at the end of the day I spent with him, he said, you know, you really have a cool ecosystem here in Atlanta with cybersecurity. You really ought to think about getting the word out. And that was kind of my aha moment. I'm like, oh, I practice technology, but it's really cybersecurity that is an overlay for all these different technologies. And that experience and that light bulb moment sent me down the path of cybersecurity and kind of where I am today because cybersecurity, it is an overlay for every single industry. We're going to talk a lot today about crypto smart contracts, but there's no technology you can pick where cybersecurity is now not a significant consideration. It's every single industry. Yeah. It's like the saying that every business now is an internet business, right? Whereas before there were internet businesses, but now most businesses have some tie into the internet in one stage or another. And I'd go further than that, Jacob. I would say every business today, whether they realize it or not, is a data business. Because what we have going on, just to level set, stepping back, is we're in the third or fourth inning of the convergence of three big trends. One is digitization. Everything is digital. Everything is data. Two, Everybody is migrating to the cloud because of all the efficiencies of not having to own and manage your own infrastructure. And then last but not least is the increase in both privacy and cybersecurity regulation. And all three of these things are happening basically at the same time. Which would make it a very complicated space to practice in and build an expertise in, because I'm sure things are constantly changing. Just on the point with regarding the cloud, because I'm curious... Are the cybersecurity considerations night and day different when you think of a cloud compared to just hosting your own servers in a data center somewhere? Does that really change the safety with regard to the technology? Well, like everything else, you're engaging in a trade-off. So when you manage your own servers and whatnot, you need a lot of resources to do that. It has a certain cost with it. And, you know, technology... You and I, if we talk 18 months from now, we'll have to upgrade our iPhone or whatever because the technology keeps evolving. So what did people decide to do? Oh, I don't have to manage that anymore. I can have migrate to the cloud and it can be managed there. And that sounds great, but now you're into a situation where the cyber threats are evolving. So interestingly enough, if you put 10 or 20 or 150 businesses all on the same cloud, now you've made the cloud what? a common point of vulnerability for the hackers. So if they can go and hack into the cloud or the most vulnerable vendor to the cloud, because no cloud vendor has fully integrated, they offer everything themselves. They partner with other people to offer various different services. And so what you've seen with Kaseya or SolarWinds, if you get that one common point of failure that gets you access to 50 or 100 or 2,000 clients, that's an opportunity for the threat actor. And that's what they've started to do with the cloud. So now as we get onto the cloud from a cybersecurity perspective, you have to evolve your thinking because now when you do due diligence on your cloud vendor, it's not really just them. Well, who are your vendors and how good is their security? Because a vulnerability for one of the vendors to the cloud provider could end up making you have a really bad day with a ransomware attack. And you mentioned solar winds, which, if I'm remembering correctly, was a ransomware attack. Could you describe a bit more about what happened there? So what solar winds was is they were a software company, and it was a software that was being used for a process in large companies, large governments. And what happened was is the threat actor found a back door with the software into the different networks of all these companies. And nobody knew about it for over a year. So think about a 
foreign government having access into different government agencies or large corporations for over a year and nobody's aware of it because the way they went about the hack was very ingenious and it wasn't easy to find. It was only once a cyber firm really drilled into it by happenstance that they were able to identify it. And I think the key takeaway is the best way I can explain cybersecurity is we are like Lego blocks now. We are so interconnected. You have a Lego block. I have a Lego block. We have a cloud provider with a Lego block. We're so interconnected that cybersecurity can be like a virus. It infiltrates one area. It spreads so quickly. And when we start talking about blockchain and cryptocurrency, it's completely reliant on code. And so that automated feature of what makes it interesting also makes it from a cybersecurity perspective, very attractive for the threat actors. And it's also very reliant on cloud servers. Like the Amazon Web Service AWS is such a huge provider of services to nodes and other, maybe not nodes necessarily, but just the infrastructure in the space is so reliant on cloud servers. Do you see that as, do you, how do you see that evolving over time when it comes to potential cybersecurity threats, when you have a cloud, but also this software that is supposed to, that is immutable, but can be manipulated as it is open source? I think what has to evolve over time, and I've written about this, is if you want to have mass adoption of blockchain and the various use cases, cybersecurity has got to be a core design feature and not an afterthought. And so as we talk about it, when we talk about open source, as you correctly pointed out, well, everybody in this first phase of the industry, it was all about speed to market. And speed to market meant you had to eliminate or not think about certain things. And what's top of that list? Well, I don't want to go and debug the code. I don't want to patch vulnerabilities because that will deter or, you know, stop my speed to market. Mm -hmm. And that's where blockchain is not alone. I can talk to you about Zoom. I can talk to you about autonomous vehicles, drones. We can pick an industry. And the challenge you have is everything about new and evolving technology is about scaling and minimal viable product. Security and privacy are afterthoughts because they're not considered something that sells the product. But where I think the law is going to come into play here for blockchain and elsewhere is you're seeing now the Biden administration say, hey, voluntary cyber compliance, it's not working. The SEC is about to go final with cyber rules for publicly traded companies like Coinbase that'll have to start disclosing. What are you doing specifically from a cyber perspective? And so I think what the law is going to help do here is start to shift cybersecurity from being a nice to have to being a requirement, because how can you have a economy that's so predicated on computers and the cloud and digitization and not have cybersecurity be a core design feature? I don't think you can. I don't think so either. And it's such a source of potentially systemic risk when you think about the effects like those Lego blocks that you mentioned earlier. So when we think about cybersecurity, last question on this point, then we'll get into some crypto for, for everyone listening, but I'm really interested in this topic because I'm not too knowledgeable on it. So when you think of cybersecurity, there is a software component, but there's also a hardware component and physical locations. Would a cybersecurity expert evaluate all aspects of it? Or are there certain experts who look at the code, some people who look at the physical location, social engineering, and how that could affect things? So Jacob, what we're really talking about to answer your question is, how do you take a holistic approach to cybersecurity? Mm -hmm. So where that has to start is, that starts with the board and the C-suite, making cybersecurity a strategic business enterprise risk 
of the business. So that means you come up with, okay, for this particular organization, what are, I'll use a law firm. Both you and I can appreciate the law firm example. Both of our firms are huge targets because we're huge repositories for very confidential uh, data. So using the law firm as an example, well, what are the key things that we need to protect when it comes to a law firm from cybersecurity? Well, number one is obviously client data. But number two is, let's be honest, if your website or my website goes down for a day, it's a little embarrassing, but it's not a big deal. But if someone is able to encrypt or otherwise undermine the integrity of our document management system to where we can't get a hold of those documents, that's a serious issue. And so the way that you go about cybersecurity is you have to go through a process of identifying what's important to your organization. It can vary. Then you want to say, okay, what now that we've identified it, how are we going to protect it? And that can be using endpoint detection, varieties of software, but it also means training employees because you can have the best software, but if your employees aren't well-trained and spotting phishing, it's not going to matter a whole lot. And then there's detecting when something happens, how are we going to respond? And then if the worst happens with a breach, what's your plan? So that's kind of a step-by-step approach, and it really takes a team effort. Cybersecurity is a team sport that requires lawyers, IT folks, cybersecurity risk management people, insurance. So that's kind of the approach that you have to take is just focusing on training while critical. That alone isn't going to help you. It is really an approach that takes into consideration people, process, and technology and how that really is tailored to the risks that your particular organization faces. And so from a legal perspective, then I can imagine the liability could accrue to numerous parties on different stages of that spectrum and depending on what their role was and what their contract said, things like that. Is there, you know, we talk a lot about crypto law and this podcast is predicated on that concept, but is there cyber, I assume there's cybersecurity law. What's the current state of cybersecurity law and what does that look like in the U.S.? So speaking from a U.S. perspective, when we talk about cybersecurity law, as you and I speak today, there is no overarching federal or state cybersecurity law. When it comes to cybersecurity, we have more of what I will call a sector-based patched quilt approach. So if you are a financial services company, if you are a healthcare company, HIPAA has a security rule. You have very sector-based things you have to do to comply with HIPAA. Financial services the same with Graham, Leach, Bliley, but on a state level, the New York Department of Financial Services has become a major player when it comes to cyber regulation because obviously New York is an epicenter of financial activity. And so what you have here is you have a hodgepodge of federal and then certain important states like New York DFS that have cybersecurity laws, but they're narrow sector-based approaches. So if you're really outside of healthcare, you're outside of financial services, there's really not as much regulation. And that's why in the last few weeks, the Biden administration came out with a position that said, you know, voluntarily cyber compliance is just not working. Part of the component has to be Regulation, and I look at privacy as a great example. That's my wife's business. Look at how privacy has changed, and even with the laws that you have in Canada, as well as the US, the rollout of these privacy laws is really starting to change corporate behavior as it relates to privacy. We haven't seen that as much yet with cybersecurity. I'll be really interested to see what happens when the SEC rules go final and how that might impact both publicly traded companies and more importantly, all of the privately held companies that are in their vendor ecosystem. When something like that does come into effect and when we, if we do start to see broader legislation, do you think the impact on businesses will be more cost and then better protection for the end users or the 
businesses themselves. Do you think that will be a net positive? Because in crypto, a lot of people say, well, guidance will be very valuable because then builders can start building. There's a line in the sand. Does that same mentality hold true for cybersecurity? So Jacob, when I think it comes to cybersecurity, if you and I put on our consumer hat, I think better cybersecurity benefits us. But if we are a smaller business, it's going to entail more costs. And the real hidden cost, particularly in the U.S., is we really need to adopt the European model of having an overarching federal law. There are 52 breach notification laws in the U.S., including Guam and Puerto Rico. And then you have five privacy state laws, and now there's eight or nine more on the docket. So if you're a company trying to comply with all these different laws, it becomes so costly. We just need to have a federal law, but think about it. When you have people on your show and you talk all about the crypto regulation, well, here's privacy and cyber. They're looking for federal legislation too. So then how does the Congress pick and choose what they're going to go after? Because with all the meltdown with FTX is one thing, but if the grid goes down for a week or some serious cybersecurity 911, that will focus everything immediately on cyber. But that's the challenge that you have is how do you get some of this legislation passed? Because this patched quilt approach is really detrimental to business. Yeah, it's unbelievable how large the impact regulation or how big of an impact regulation has on business from a perspective of it began with disclosure in the early 1900 or the 1900s and now it's a, almost a permissioning regime where you have to meet certain requirements in order just to survive as a business. In terms of crypto, now I think uh, you know we've warmed everybody up with cybersecurity We'll get to some of the exciting stuff, the speculative stuff. I'd love to hear how you were introduced to Bitcoin and what the story was there. So my genesis block for a coin goes back to my oldest client, and he cashed out of a deal where he <clears throat> sold stock very profitably, and he decided he was going to turn his data center into a crypto mining facility. And that was back in 2016, and I didn't know what it was. But he's like, yeah, we're going to do this. And I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to have to learn it. So I went on, watched a lot of videos on YouTube. I also took a course at MIT and that's how I got started. So crypto mining is my background. And then I have since enlarged my practice into decentralized finance and NFTs. But that's how I got started, a client. And I just followed along and said, wow, this stuff is really cool. It is. And it's, did it start to click for you right away or was the client's pitch compelling enough where you realized this could really change the way things work in the world? Or was it, did you come at it with a healthy skepticism for a while? Really what changed it for me, Jacob, is I went to a conference when Consensus was in New York and I was sitting talking to someone from Venezuela and he said, yeah, the regime is so authoritarian and we were being persecuted. And the only way that we could get our wealth out of the country was Bitcoin. And then I was working with a client and, you know, there's very few banks these days, especially that will bank crypto. And I saw what happened when banks just say, hey, we don't like you. We're not going to bank you. And then it really dawned on me with those two events and said, you know what, this current financial system we have, if you want to color outside the lines even a little bit, they'll just bring the hammer down on you. And there has mm -hmm. to be a better way, particularly in light of what I thought about what happened in 08 when you had the too big to fail centralized intermediaries. So it was really a confluence of those different experiences that really shifted my thinking into understanding why this technology has real resonance. 
And so when it comes to cybersecurity and digital assets, we've talked a bit about that on how where the overlap is there with the cloud and with the relationship between service providers there. But how do you see that evolving? Because now we have a technology that you can trust, that you can store digitally on a smart contract, for example, and then that can execute in a trustless manner so long as the code works as you intended or expected it to work. There's a lot of risks with incorrect code, but keeping that aside, how do you, what do you see the future of, how do you see the invent of blockchains impacting cybersecurity over the longer term? So I think where blockchain can be helpful is in its decentralized nature. It kind of diffuses that attack surface. Remember we talked earlier about the cloud, how everybody on the cloud makes it kind of centralized and that's a common point of failure. Well, with decentralization, you're really doing the opposite. But when we really examine the blockchain, and you gave a couple great examples, smart contracts, digital wallets, and the bridge chains. Those are the three areas as we speak today and I think in the foreseeable future, those are the areas where the threat actors are gravitating towards and you've seen the prolific hacks that happen almost weekly for a variety of, let's be honest, not, I'm not surprised given the need in this industry to get to market so quickly and the corners that got cut to do it. Well, it's an interesting one, right? Because the longer a protocol is in existence, something like Bitcoin, every year Bitcoin isn't hacked, it becomes more trustworthy. And now because it's been around for 14, 13 years, you can start to say, well, hey, if it hasn't been hacked yet, I can really trust it. Whereas some of these newer projects, they still need to go through those iterations. And Bitcoin did have improvement proposals that were implemented and it code has been changed over time. But it's an interesting dynamic between a project that's issued and then has to go through bumps and bruises, but doesn't get the opportunity like Bitcoin did to sort of work in relative obscurity rather than raise $600 million initially. And you make an excellent point. In all these years, how many hacks have we heard about on the Bitcoin blockchain itself? Now, Mt. Gox and other on-ramps to it, different story. But I think that's a real data point that says, hey, you can have security with decentralized protocols. I mean, what's interesting is, you know, when we get into the mining aspect of Bitcoin, because what's happened over time is it was very decentralized. And now, you know, we have more centralized mining pools because it's very hard on your own to have enough computing power to do it yourself. So I've always found that interesting that what happens if you could hack one or two or three of the largest mining pools, you could get to the 51%, but it hasn't been done to this point, And Bitcoin has been remarkably resilient from a security perspective. It's a great point you raised too about the miners. And those are all, there are areas of risk, right? It's not this perfect system where the server's downloaded on everyone's computer and smartphone in the world, and therefore we can trust it. It is much different than that. So when you think about potential vulnerabilities and a hack of the validators or anything, what do you think the most tying in the most likely, but also the worst case possible scenario could be when it comes to, say, Bitcoin or another blockchain in terms of vulnerability? Would it be a hack of the miners and then using that to double spend tokens in the future? So I think it really depends on the blockchain. So obviously with Bitcoin, I think if you were able to have a 51% attack where you could rewrite the transactions, that would be one. But really, Jacob, I think what you're asking is if we look at the different kinds of consensus protocols on different blockchains, depending upon how you design it, you can create your own vulnerability. And I think it would be helpful if 
we should talk about what happened with Axie Infinity because I think that's just a terrific case study to really dig in a little bit to a particular case and kind of try to answer your question. I love that idea. Yeah, please discuss what happened with Axie Infinity. So let's dig into Axie. So if the audience recalls, Axie was this very doing great play to earn game. So you would create NFTs of these monsters and you could earn crypto and it quickly became the number one game in the Philippines. And it was built on the Ethereum blockchain. But here's the thing about the Ethereum blockchain. As cool as the technology is, the Ethereum blockchain in and of itself, it's kind of slow, if you know what I mean, by transaction per second. So if you want to scale a game where you're minting NFTs, you're buying crypto and earning that, you, need, you have the need for speed. And if we remember what you know, Valerie Buterek said, you have three concepts that kind of have to give a little bit decentralization, security, and scaling. So the key for Axie is, hey, if we want more people to be on this game and it's slow and people can't mint their NFTs and they don't have a good user experience, what's going to happen? They're not going to use the game. So they think, what are we going to do? We've got to come up with a way to enhance the speed. So what did they end up doing? They created a layer above Ethereum or on it, layer two, and they called it the Ronin network. And so how did the Ronin network work? Well, the way that they wanted to validate transactions is they had nine validators. And when they first started out, they said, okay, if five of the nine validate this transaction, then we're good to go. So interestingly enough, as you know, after the hack, they're now up to eight to nine. But one question I have is, well, why didn't you use eight out of nine to begin with? Why did you start at five? Well, I think the answer to that is speed of transaction. But then layered on top of that, Four of the nodes Axie controlled, and then they had this other DAO that controlled a fifth node, but apparently Axie still had some agency rights to make the call, and they forgot to cut that off. And so what happens next? Well, one of the engineers for the company was getting solicited for a job offer. He goes through one, two, three rounds of interviews, and they finally send him an offer, and he clicks on it, not realizing it's a completely fake offer. And the attachment has what? Malware. So now the threat actor, who turns out later to be the Lazarus Group, which is the hacking group for the North Koreans, can get onto the network. And they quickly figure out, oh, we can control all five of the nine validators because Axie has four. And then the fifth one, they have this backdoor approval that they forgot to eliminate, much like when you let go of an employee, but you don't get their password and terminate their access. So what did they do? They were able to exploit that vulnerability and to make it even worse, Axie didn't even know about the hack for an entire week. In the world of cybersecurity, that might as well be like 40 years that you didn't know about it because things, particularly on the blockchain, it happens so fast. And so talking about that story, what are some of the lessons to be learned? One, going back to your original question, why did they design their consensus mechanism to only be five out of nine? Afterwards, let's go, oh, we'll make it eight out of nine. Why didn't we start there? I think it was because they didn't want to have a slow transaction speed. Speed meant everything, but speed has to come at a cost. And for most of these companies, what's the cost? We'll deal with cybersecurity when it happens. And if you recall, Jacob, they made good on everyone's losses, which must tell you how much money were they making to have made good on those losses? Because we know in the latter part of 2022 in these days, that ain't happening. But that story tells you the trade-offs between scaling and getting to market quickly versus security. And I can tell you, blockchain isn't the only one. Security always loses. 
Thank you, Justin, for that background. And I think the losses ended up around $620 million worth of crypto. And to think that it came through a fake job offer and then there was malware there. So how does malware work when he would click on that? And then so he clicks on that and then it gets in the system somehow. Do you know what's happening on a technical level there? Well, not to I don't want to get too technical with the audience, but if you click on malware, it contains code that gets onto your machine and then starts to go through your machine and see what it has access to. Because remember, we're, we live in a networked world. So my, you know, your machine logs on to your law firm server like mine does. And if you then get access to my machine and it moves laterally onto the corporate network, now it's looking around. Because for the most part, Jacob, on average, when I've handled ransomware and what, from the time of the initial intrusion into the network, as opposed to when they do their mayhem, it's a good 90 or 120 days because they're doing their recon to figure out what can we do here? What are we looking for? But when we talk about malware without getting too technical, that's essentially what it is. It's malicious code that is now downloaded onto your machine and now it can start moving through your network. And unless you have really good endpoint detection and other things, and a lot of the blockchain companies don't, they don't even know it's there. And I guess it's a program that begins running when you click on it. Right. That's Correct. sort of the signal to start the phase of it searching through the programs on the back end. Yes. That's why when you're getting trained on cybersecurity, everyone's don't click on the attachment. That's kind of your last defense. If you don't click on that attachment, the malware usually can't be downloaded. It's just once you click, that's the River Rubicon. Right. Similar to signing a transaction that might be fraudulent in crypto, right? It's you, there has to be some input on your end. We're not at the stage yet where they can just completely control from a third party can get into your account and control it without you having some control over that process, unless, you know, they hack your password or things like that. Well, we should talk about digital wallets because what happens there is if you get fished and you click on something maliciously, the way digital wallets work, you've effectively given the right for whoever sent you the email, you've given them the right to transfer the crypto out of your wallet. That's why phishing for Web3 is so potentially devastating because it can happen so quick because digital contracts, digital wallets, it's so automated. And so let's talk a bit about smart contracts then. Mm -hmm. Initially, were you pretty excited to see things like smart contracts given how they can mitigate that third party risk of operating a certain transaction? My view of smart contracts is number one, and I know you've heard this before, the label of smart contract is a slick marketing term, but it's a misnomer. As we know, it's just code that automatically executes when certain conditions are met. So can it be helpful for certain black and white things of, you know, did Justin meet the condition to send Jacob the money or not? Yes. But where it breaks down a little bit is, was that a material adverse effect? Well, reasonable people can disagree. And so I think smart contracts are really helpful to automate certain pretty basic things where maybe not having human intervention is helpful. But there's also limits when we start talking about, oh, we're going to get rid of courts and have AI and all this stuff. Well, that's a whole nother can of worms. But it's really understanding that smart contracts aren't really designed to deal with some of the more complicated problems just yet. I think we'd have to see an evolution with artificial intelligence that we trust to really have that learning about what more complex issues like, was it reasonable for what you did or not? People can differ as opposed to, did you pay or not? 
Right. The smart contracts are more of that vending machine approach where they'll do what you've asked, what you've programmed them to do, but thinking critically and thinking in ways that are qualitative instead of quantitative is impossible at this stage for them, unless you bring in some form of AI, I guess, could be interesting there. Are there any big risks that you see in the crypto space generally? This could be smart contracts, could be digital wallets, exchanges, etc. Any ones that you think you've seen and think, you know, people aren't talking about this enough? I think from my perspective, the biggest one is if we really want to have self-custody, and we've talked a lot about this, you know, not having custodial wallets and having the risk of what's going on with the exchanges, it really means that people have to think differently about security. It means like you treat your digital wallet and your phrases and your passcode the same as you treat your car keys and locking up your car. And so from my perspective, if people want self-sovereignty, that's great. But we also have to understand what that means from your own perspective of what you have to do to make that happen. You can't just say, oh, I'll, it's on AWS. It must be safe. It means, yeah, I have to take personal responsibility for how I protect my digital wallet. And I don't know that there's enough discussion that you know you have to want it and you have to own up to the fact that you're going to have to be part of the protection. You're not relying on third parties, which is what most people do. It typically takes a proof of loss for somebody to lose money, whether it's they forgot their keys, they were fished, exchange went down that had funds on them for people to start to realize, hey, you know, if I don't take these proper precautions like I would my car keys, my house keys, etc. And even now that because it's so digital, if you keep a screenshot on your phone of your private keys, who knows, right? Like just as long as it's online, it's a very dangerous game to be playing. So I always recommend cold storage. And I think it's a good way even to learn how that works too. Absolutely. I think that you hit the nail on the head is for all of these hacks we've talked about on the blockchain, I'm willing to bet you a good steak dinner. None of them had any kind of incident response plan because why are we going to worry about security when we're scaling? And that goes to your point of having to feel that pain. And that's why I think some of the regulations when it comes to cybersecurity are going to be important because it will take it from a nice to have to more of a legal requirement. And it'll be better for everybody too, right? It might be one of those things that hurts in the short run and it might disproportionately affect certain types of businesses that can afford it. But I think over the long term, it, it will turn out to be a net benefit like many other laws we've seen come into play. So before we talk about your book though, I'd love to just ask you one question about a project. So say there is an NFT project or they want to spin up a DAO or you have just an exchange. Are there any best practices that you've seen businesses use to improve their cybersecurity? And this is mentioned a bit in your book in the final chapter, but I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that. So for a business, when it comes to cybersecurity, it has to start with the culture and an awareness that, you know what, we're going to make security a core feature of our business and not an afterthought. Because again, cybersecurity is really made up of three things, people, process, and technology. And so like a good simple example for that would be I still have contracts where I'm negotiating and I have a clause in there that says, yes, all of your people who access our software use multi-factor authentication. And I'll get some people to push back on me and say, well, we don't want to do this. And I'm like, guys, in the 21st century, that's table stakes. And so when I, as an example, I would say, you know, a company should be pay the extra bit of money for the Microsoft license that allows you to have multi-factor authentication, enable that. Have training so that your employees start to understand what phishing is and how to not just click on whatever comes down the pike. And then 
The other part is start to engage with professionals because most companies don't want to hire a full-blown staff, but they're good resources that you can get to get yourself a decent level of protection. It's kind of like driving your car. There's no 100% guarantee you won't get into an accident, but if you put on your seatbelt, if you're alert, you can drastically reduce your exposure to having that happen. Agreed. So let's touch on your book now called Data Reimagined, Building Trust One Bite at a Time. What I really liked about the book and as I went through it was it it talks about trust. And trust is sort of the base level of what these blockchains do. They solve the aspects of trust in new ways that were never really before possible before Satoshi solved the double spend problem. How do you see the relationship between digital assets and trust developing? Well, I think it has everything to do with how you arrive at the consensus protocol because blockchain at its core is all about disrupting the middleman. It all came about because of 2008 and all these centralized intermediaries that were too big to fail. So the idea with blockchain and Bitcoin is, well, we want to disrupt that middleman and find another way to create trust using software code. And so What I think is interesting about that is you and I can debate Bitcoin mining or whatever protocol of trust that you're using to replace the intermediary. But if you don't have a level of security to where you feel your assets are safe, none of that is going to matter. And that's where I see the real symbiotic relationship when it comes to cybersecurity and blockchain. Because as you've known with the FTX blow up, everyone's talking about we need to get back to the ethos of having decentralization and doing all that. And my view is that's great, but if we don't really focus on cybersecurity when it comes to self-sovereign wallets, when it comes to how we design these consensus protocols, the Axie example, we won't have mass adoption because people won't trust it enough to actually put their assets online in a digital wallet. I don't know how you get around it. It's true because a lot of people don't care to know the difference or even think about a centralized exchange versus a decentralized one or a custodian versus self-custody, right? It's often lost in that discussion, especially when people are just reading headlines. And if you're trying to get broader adoption, especially to the point where people might not even know it's cryptocurrency, it's more just like a digital asset that they're using. I think the security on the back end will continue to grow and obviously is so important. And a lot of the reason, a big reason why it's important is privacy, right? Like data storage, collection, leaks, all relate to privacy. But it seems like many people that I've spoken to, not on this podcast, but just in in daily life while I was in school and things, people aren't as concerned about privacy as maybe they should be. Like, why do you see privacy being so important? And why should people care more about privacy than they do? Well, I guess being a little older, what's gone on in the last 20 years with the rise of Web 2, and now we're into Web 3, people's view of privacy has dramatically shifted. And what I don't think people fully appreciate is how much information there is out there about you. If you just give someone an email or if, I mean, heck, I went to the Atlanta airport, I'm there for 20 minutes. They've got my license plate. They've got my visual picture. And with those two pieces of information, you can put such a detailed portrait together of what I do every day. And where I think this becomes so critically important is technology, if you look at an authoritarian regime like China, look how it enables surveilling your population and knowing what everyone is doing. And I don't think people really appreciate how much their privacy is being eroded. It's almost like it's happening in plain sight and people are averted to the fact that part of being a democratic society and just living your life with freedom is 
privacy. It's true. And it gives you freedom to do things that you might not want to do. It's the same reason we close our doors at home. And, you know, people like to have that freedom to be unobserved. And I think it is such an important thing, especially when you think about what the internet and technologies, particularly in software enable, it's that scalability where now a small group of people can make a decision like in China, for example, with social credit scores that can impact millions of people at a press of a button. And the people making those decisions, whether they think it or not, are humans and they're fallible and they make mistakes and they have biases as well. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's part of where in Canada, the United States, we need to start having an open debate. You know, ChatGPT has come out in the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you've played around with it a little bit, but I asked it to write a contract. I asked it to show me what a phishing email looks like. And it's just another example with blockchain, autonomous vehicles, drones, artificial intelligence. All the technology is coming at us so quickly and the laws are so far behind and our ability to kind of grasp what are the unintended consequences, it's just getting wider. And it's fundamentally changing the way that we relate to each other in some ways for the better, but as you also know, some ways for the worse. And that's my big concern is that these things are happening and we're not really having an open debate about what do these things mean? What are the implications from them, both good and bad, so that we can make informed decisions with social media? We're kind of left with the debris of all the craziness that's gone on with it. It's true. We're almost in a sense just playing defense rather than playing offense and trying to get ahead of things. We're responding to hacks and making changes post-mortem, but not really getting ahead. And that's when that could lead to some dangerous repercussions in the future, particularly like we spoke about systemic risk. And if major service providers get hacked or shut down, it, it would be pretty chaotic for that to happen. Let's. I'd love to just close off with two final questions. The first is regarding projects in the crypto space. And I'd love to just add a little twist to this because typically ask like what projects you're excited about. But I'd love to hear what keeps you in crypto. Like, why do you think the crypto space has potential over the long term? What keeps me in the space is the intellectual rigor of it and the ability to come up with cool solutions to new problems. It's very much like cybersecurity that way. The reason that I think it has staying power is one, the story I told about the person in Venezuela would be one. And then two, you know, we, you probably saw in the news the craziness over the Taylor Swift tickets. Now think if you had a non-fungible token exchange where you knew exactly the origin of the tickets, they were dynamic tickets and all this other stuff. I think that's a great use for blockchain. And even though you and I have been talking about, you know, all the stuff that's been a challenge with blockchain and crypto as well, I think the silver lining this year is for enterprise blockchain. I'm still seeing deals with Starbucks, for Nike, for some of these big enterprise brands. And I think they see the value of it. They're just, they don't go as quickly as some of the startups for obvious reasons, but you're seeing these projects and there are some really good use cases for blockchain out there. And I hope that this year, you know, with the regulatory stuff that I know is going to go on, it gives us some room to breathe and have some really good use cases come up. Because let's be honest, the dot-com bust in 2000, oh, this internet, this doesn't work. And then of course they found the killer app and now we don't know how we live without it. My personal opinion is I think we're kind of in that analogous period. And I'm optimistic that killer app is going to be found. And the other thing is people shouldn't talk about, oh, we're using blockchain technology. Like when I email you, we don't worry about the transport layer security and how it all works. I just know that you get an email from me and you get one back. 
I think blockchain probably for a while needs to work the same way where you don't need to know the back end other than the technical folks. You just need to know that your ticket shows up and your it might be a digital wallet, but it's your app and it all works. Yep. Yep. Like the layer one, layer two. And yeah. I think as we continue to build out the technologies on top of it, it's inevitable that it will gain broad and widespread adoption. I think it will look a lot like the internet in that you don't think of them as an internet company anymore. You just think of them as a retailer like Amazon, for example, or a cab service like Uber. So I think going forward, it will be, it'll be cool to see that built out on the back end. Now, just to talk last question for you, Justin, a bit about your career. Are there any habits that you've cultivated? I know you're a prolific speaker, you're a writer, you've published a book. Are there habits related to those two things or are there other habits that you look back on and you think individuals should consider or at least you found helpful in your career? I would say a few things. One is continue to have intellectual curiosity and be a lifelong learner. None of the fields I'm in today existed when I graduated from law school. Number two is, and I know this is hard for us as lawyers sometimes is don't be afraid to fail. Don't be, don't be afraid to go out there and try something and okay, you fall flat on your face because a lot of times it's when things don't go right in your life that you really learn something where you unlock something that really helps you later. And then I think last is consistently cultivating relationships with other lawyers or other people that are in the space, particularly in crypto, because there's so much to learn here that it's just critical to create a network of people that you can call on, share ideas and socialize thoughts because there's just a lot of creative ways to do things in this industry. Those are such great points because it's, it is easy to get caught up in thinking about the risk and what happens if I fail. But if you step back and you think, well, last time I failed at something, I learned a ton from it. It's very freeing in that sense. And then you can maybe take advantage of that and do things outside your comfort zone. And then your comfort zone expands and you go grow from there. You know, Jacob, in retrospect, as you know, we're going through a period of time where there's been a lot of tech layoffs and a lot of the younger people have never been through this before. When I look back on my legal career, the first time I lost my job was the best thing they ever did to me because it just lit a fire under me that I was going to learn how to develop clients and build a practice and whatnot. And had I never had that experience, my career path would have been completely different. Thank you for sharing that because I know a lot of people who've been affected by layoffs recently and it's it hurts. And it, I think people take it very personally, of course, and it's especially when you're starting out your career, right? It's a big hurdle to overcome. You have to rebuild your confidence up, rebuild yourself. And the best way to do that is through action. And I think you're a good example with all the things that you've built in your career and your practice now and expertise in the space. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I do have to ask though, you have a beautiful full bookshelf behind you. If you had to recommend one book to the listeners, is there any that comes to mind quickly? I know it's a lot of pressure, but I thought I'd ask. You know, I want to say data reimagined, so I'll, I won't say <laughs> that one. A book that I highly recommend to your audience is a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It completely changed the way that I view negotiation and an incredibly helpful book because let's be honest, life is all about negotiating at work with your spouse. And I learned a ton of great tips in that book. Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And then I will link Data Reimagined in the show notes below for anyone interested in reading Justin's book. I highly recommend it. I've enjoyed reading through it. Is there anything else that, that you want to add just before we, uh, we call it? I have nothing else to add. I've enjoyed it. I really appreciate your time and I really enjoy your podcast. You do a great job. Thanks, Justin. It was a pleasure speaking with you and I'm glad we were able to make this happen. <laughs>